This is Dale Stewart, and you are tuned into Nature's Edge. I've got uh, Leslie here working the board, and she's uh, already pointing at me this morning, bright and early. We got a uh, we've got a special guest today, and we're going to talk about the conservation of cultural heritage uh, and work that uh, Lamar Marshall has done. Lamar is a friend of mine. He's a cultural heritage director at Wild South. Uh, he has been honored. Uh, by the Wilderness Society for his Environmental Heroes Award. He was a winner of the First Lady's Millennium Trails Award in Alabama. He has also served as the State of Alabama Outdoor Ambassador. Uh, Lamar is also the co-author of the Wilderness Society's Alabama Mountain Treasures and co-author of Indian Trails of the Warrior Mountains. Lamar's current projects uh, include the Cherokee Trail Project funded by the Eastern Band Cherokee Indians. The project includes retracing British-American Army routes on the Old Cherokee Trails, and the work in uh, 2012 included mapping historical Cherokee Trails on the Kuala Boundary and identifying potential recreational trails for the Eastern Bay of the Cherokee Indian use. And for those of you that don't know, the Kuala Boundary are the boundaries of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indian. Lamar, welcome to Nature's Edge. Glad to be here, Dale. We're gonna we're gonna jump right in on a lot of this a uh, lot of this talk about uh, historical geography, Lamar, and, and uh, uh, particularly as it relates to conservation and and uh, your work that you've been doing with the Eastern Bay of the Cherokee. But why don't you talk to us a little bit about just what is historical geography? <clears throat> well, I really don't know if it's cultural geography or geographical history, you know, or historical geography. But um, it's, it's a, I would say that it is recapturing or creating a snapshot of the past, in our case, of the Cherokee ancestral landscape. And to do that, um, we have to take, of course, historical maps and, um, and all, everything we can find and bring together, such as, uh, you know, what was the name of this mountain? What was the Cherokee name of a mountain or a stream? And, but we create a, a snapshot in time. And, of course, you could do that on paper, but today we have the ability with our computers and GIS to do this on, uh, create a virtual landscape by building layers in the, on the computer. But it, but it's, it, it is a recapturing of a people's history as related and tied to the land, place, events. You know, where, uh, where, did a, where was a Cherokee bear hunting camp located? They want to know that. I mean, this is history that... That has been kind of forgotten and lost, so we are recapturing this history, and, the, and then mapping it. And where do you, where do you find where a camp might have been, Lamar? Is that, that just hard research and looking through uh, old records and actually talking to uh, uh, two members of the tribe that might have some history of the area? Well, there's a lot of things that uh, that go into that. Number one, we take early surveys and historical maps to locate where the town where the actual per more permanent, although they moved around, towns and villages were located. The uh, hunting camps, uh, a lot of those have been found in, noted in records and journals, as specifically where they were located. I found some located in 1827 in surveys, where surveyors would actually be uh, subdividing lands around the Smoky Mountains, and they would, the band of the Cherokees were camped at a hunting camp. So uh, just using various records. And then um, as you find things, you put it into your either Google Earth mapping is real good or into a GIS program. And now, you, you're doing this. Uh, this is through some grants that Wild South received that, that allows you to do this. 
um, this work with uh, for the Eastern Band? Yes. Uh, when I, I'm from Alabama. I, in by 1991, I was in Alabama. I founded a conservation group down there, International Forest. The forest has really been abused, clear-cut, poisoned, and burned. And uh, a lot of Native American descendants there uh, came out, and, you know, they were fought against these practices. So uh, a lot of the um, the only way we found to really protect uh, place was to make it make it a cultural thing. People, especially in Alabama, they don't care if there's an endangered snail dart or endangered toad. They just really don't care about that. But if you if you clear cut a mountainside where somebody killed their first deer, uh, if you uh, if you run over somebody great grandma's tombstone out in the woods with your logging machine, people care about about their history and about the places that they love and the places they're connected to. So from there. Uh, we identified all these uh, resources or trails and uh, Indian sites in the Bankhead National Forest. And then I began to work on work with the, the uh, National Park Service on mapping the Trail of Tears across Alabama. So it's kind of an outgrowth of this this principle. And uh, what really got me going on it, though, was an old man told me, he said, Lamar, he said, the blood and the bones of my ancestors are, uh, nourished all those old trees up on that mountain that they're cutting down. You know, and I was thinking, well, this is what really matters right here. So, but anyway, being very interested in trails and in Indian history, um, I, uh, I, we, let's see, let me back up a second. I joined the National Trail of Tears Association, the Alabama chapter, and the project there was to, to re-map and re write the history surrounding the Binge Detachment that in 1838, about 1,100 Cherokees left the Fort Payne area and, uh, and were taken up, well, part of them went by water, part of them went by, by land through Tennessee. And in order to locate where they were, uh, I had to find early surveys because in Rainsville, Alabama, there was a big historical marker that said the, Cher- the Cherokee Trail of Tears went through Rainsville, and I was like, well, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. So I took the 1838, 39, and 40 surveys. As soon as the Cherokees were, were run out of the countryside, the uh, white surveyors were there subdividing the land. And they noted where the wagon roads were, all the wagon roads. They noted where the trails were. And it became very evident that, the, that this uh, wagon route, you know, followed a, a different course than what they had believed that it followed. So from there, I moved to North Carolina. And I was, when I started looking at Cherokee history, and I lived close to Koala Boundary, and I was wondering where all the maps that show where all these old Cherokee trails were, because there was a point in time where there was nothing but Cherokee trails up in these parts that you traveled on. And uh, so I went to the Cherokee Preservation Foundation and got support from the tribe, and they funded me to, to, to research and to reconstruct their trail system. And that sort of started your your relationship with with the Eastern Band of the Cherokee with, with doing that. I was going to ask you, you you touched upon it a little bit, but it it really looks like that uh, the, the historical geographical information and the maps really is a uh, is is a strong way uh, to to introduce conservation practices to uh, to the locals. Correct, because as you said, they they well, I can tell you how that plays out. Um, number one, in order to uh, save anything to these days, you got to it's got to be have a special designation of some type. Absolutely. I mean, it could be you know uh, wilderness, it could be a cultural heritage area, whatever. Uh, in in the Native American community, 
Now, the National Park Service has created what they call traditional cultural properties, which would be, say, you gathered sochan or gathered plants for a thousand years in this area, within you were given permission as a native people to carry on this tradition. About lost my train of thought there, but I was, right. here's what I was working towards. Uh, we found out that, that I've mapped about 200 miles of Cherokee trails across the Pisgah Nandahalan National Forest in North Carolina. And I know from my experience in Alabama that any that a historical trail or road over 100 years old is covered by this uh, this law that if it exists on federal land or state land, that the, the managers must protect it. And what they would do, they would inventory trails or archaeological sites, and then uh, they would have to study them to determine if they're significant or not significant. And if they were very significant, they might even be be a uh, become a on, listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So, and we also work with the Forest Service up here. We have a very, very good archaeological and tribal relations uh, department with the U.S. Forest Service, and they recognize immediately that the trails are very, you know, very special, and they have what they call a linear cultural resource, which would be like a a long cultural yeah. resource. Yeah. Could be a fifty-mile long Cherokee trail. Now in Alabama. It was kind of funny working with the Forest Service because they would come up and, and do a clear cut or build a logging road. Well, a logging road was called a linear wildlife opening. I never quite figured that out, but uh, linear cultural resources are a good thing. So we have submitted about 110 miles of Cherokee trails to the Forest Service, and they have, are, are putting them in their inventory, and no ground-disturbing activities will occur on or near these trails until they're studied. And, and furthermore, we're going to ask for a – in fact, they suggested maybe a quarter mile on each side of these trails, which would give us a half a mile wide corridor. Good thing. That is that is a good thing. We're visiting with uh, Lamar Marshall. Lamar is the uh, uh, Cultural Heritage Director for Wild South, and we are coming up on uh, – Coming up on the end of this segment, and uh, Lamar, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little more about about how those those quarters that you were just talking about. I know that the uh, U.S. Forest Service has got some plans to increase logging in uh, in areas, and I want to talk to you a little about that in the next segment. This is Dale Stewart and Nature's Edge, and we shall return. Glad to have you back. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and my guest uh, today is, is Lamar Marshall, and Lamar is the Cultural Heritage Director for Wild South, and Lamar and I are talking about uh, mapping historical landscapes and, and all things that go along with that, and, and Lamar, right before uh, we ended the last segment, we were talking about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the corridors and some of the trails through the National Park Service, and I know that... Uh, uh, recently, the U.S. Forest Service has is developing plans to increase logging in uh, uh, in Pisgah and uh, Natahaya National Forest here in western North Carolina. And I know you've uh, uh, been keeping up with that and where things are going along there. Is is there a way that we can use any of uh, any of the, the the trail work that you're doing to to help protect uh, uh, and, and and slow down this this logging? Uh, 
idea from the from the uh, Forest Service? What the Forest Service has done is actually greatly increase the number of acres of the National Forest, the Pisgah-Nandahela National Forest, that is going to be open for they call it suitable timber. And what so, does that mean? well, that means that it can be it can be logged, uh, and they they will do that on pretty steep terrain. So. Um, Yes, the, what we're doing is going to, number one, it's going to take away some, a lot of that acreage. There's going to be like 50,000, I guess there's 110 miles of trails. I think it's 35,000 acres that we've got so far that would be in supposed corridors that would be, of course, the historical context of a cultural corridor would be, to me, would be old-growth timber, uh, as it would have been if you was, were Cherokee crossing that trail in 1700, you would have seen large old-growth trees. Yes. And of course, the Forest Service is saying, "Well, we what we're doing, we're, we're we need to uh, create more early successional habitat. We need to cut these trees down in order so that we can have more undergrowth. You know, things come up for deer and and a lot of different wildlife. And and yes, we do need many different types of habitats. But as far as early successional habitat, we're we got plenty of that all over. Three fourths of North Carolina is early successional habitat." So, but anyway, these corridors will, will number one, they're going to protect something that is real, something that's historical, something that is that is invaluable to the uh, to the native and indigenous peoples that lived here. The Cherokee Trail System is the the circuitry for our modern transportation system. A lot of trails are under modern paved roads. Yeah. I mean, it's just that simple because a a, a flat valley following a, a river, you know, it's, it's the only flat place around. That's where the trail was. That's where the highway went. And uh, the trails evolved. That's kind of maybe you want to get into that yet, though, about the evolution of the trails. But back to the conservation. Yes, this will deduct number one from the acreage that could be cut, and it's going to protect a very special cultural resource. That well, yeah, and and of course, you know, uh, Lamar, my interest is is the water trails, uh, as you, as you know, and and uh, uh, and I know in the past you and I have talked about sort of identifying. Uh, some of these water trails, but but uh, that were used by the Cherokee, but also the these yeah the, the these trails where they were land or water uh, that predated our our whole highway system, our whole road system, and I know on a lot of the water trails, uh, whenever I was paddling and researching water trails, um, you know a lot of the history and a lot of the a lot of the culture, a lot of the uh, areas now are underwater because we built these massive dams that, that flooded these areas so put a lot of those uh the old fishing camps that the that the Cherokee used and the creek used and and a lot of the a lot of their villages now uh, you know are, were underwater as a result of that uh, just like you were saying some of the trails themselves now are under uh, shopping centers and under uh, pavement and concrete so the the Again, you do believe that that we can utilize the the trails uh, that have been identified and have been selected to um, as a conservation method to to help delay or prevent the logging around them. Yeah, it would be a, actually be probably illegal to log within those uh, corridors, or at least something that would impact the trail itself, because they are archaeological resources. And yes. You can't just go out there and destroy an archaeological resource. No, well, it, you were talking about sort of the uh, uh, the trails themselves. You want to talk a little bit about the the history or 
or getting into the uh, the trail system? Yeah, because that's the most interesting part. A lot of people in these this area up here loves to get out and hike on trails, whether it's a developed modern trail. And a lot of our modern trails, including part of the Appalachian Trail, was were Cherokee trails. So uh, I guess if you went back to 1700 or 1600, there would be trails, tra- transcontinental trail system, Gulf of Mexico to Hudson Bay, Atlantic to the Pacific. These things were all connected. They crisscrossed. Uh, the country through every indigenous uh, national claim, and they traded on them, they hunted on them, they made war, you know, on some of them called war paths. And they would, Cherokees would travel up to fight the Shawnees, say, or the Shawnees would come down here to fight. But it's uh, interesting how they, we don't know exactly how they developed, but I'm certain that big game early on, animal trails uh, were were followed by people, and then they became people trails um, one of the cool things about these trails in the mountains up here is that if i was you know if i was a cherokee and i could walk in this in this rut in this groove that was worn down by thousands of years of moccasins my ancestors walked in it i can look and i can see the same mountain peaks and you know the and the same things that they saw and had that feeling that you have somehow stepped back in in time so these trails develop probably from animal trails and then human trails and the the geographical features that you want to think about are gaps. When you got mountains, as we're in mountain country up here, every low gap served as a corridor to get over the lowest part of that mountain, rather than having to go through a higher, steeper place. Yeah. So you look for if you were going to look for trails or work on trails using your historical maps, you would consider where is the ford. And this river's deep for several miles, but here's a fording place. Here's a, there's a gap in the mountain. There's a dividing ridge. Uh, dividing ridges were very important because during the winter uh, winter time when the waters are high and the streams are high, if you're traveling cross country on the in a valley, you're going to be wet. You're going to have to cross through all these streams. If you get on a dividing ridge, which is a watershed divide, you can sometimes travel for many miles and not not get your foot wet. So they were very important as for for travel ways, as were the the valleys. In 1837, when W.G. Williams with the U.S. Army Corps of Topographical Engineers came, was sent in on a reconnaissance mission to map Cherokee trails in western North Carolina because they were preparing to remove the Cherokees, they sent out surveying teams. And he wrote, he said, every, every creek up here has got a Cherokee trail going up, the one that can, can get up. So they mapped the, the primary trails, and they told the soldiers, said, we, need to, we want to know if these Cherokees uh, are going to fight if they're going to, you know, go peaceably. But we want to know where their trails are, number one, so that we can get our army in there to take them on or build roads, wagon roads, to get them out. So it's kind of a of a sad story back there. But, but they made one of the best maps of western North Carolina that defines uh, and shows hundreds of miles of Cherokee trails very accurately. And what year was that, Lamar? That was 1837. In preparation for the 1838 removal. Yeah, I, I actually think I have seen that map or looked at that map and and uh, uh, early on in, in some of my early research, and it is it is amazing how accurate they were uh, with their maps. You're listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart. We're talking to Lamar Marshall, and and Lamar, when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, about the towns that were around and how the trails uh, connected some of the towns uh, and. Uh, we shall return. 
Are you going to point, Leslie, or should I just start talking? <laughs> Welcome back to Nature's Edge. This is Dale Stewart. I was looking at Leslie, waiting on her to point at me. She said she was going to do that, but uh, evidently she forgot. And uh, that happens uh, sometimes, but I'm sure she'll, uh, after this is over, she'll remind me that uh, that was not the case. Anyway, I'm talking <laughs> I'm talking with my guest, Lamar Marshall. Uh, Lamar is a cultural heritage director uh, Wild South, and more important, he has spent a good deal of his his time over the last years uh, mapping the uh, the Cherokee trails in what three states? Lamar, Alabama, North Carolina, primarily, but also some in Tennessee. Have you, have you got over in that area? Yes, the trails just never seem to end at a state line. No, and you, you're drawn into a lot. Of, well, where did this come out? You know, so I'm focusing on Western North Carolina. But also I've, I've mapped a lot in the northern uh, South Carolina, the up, upstate South Carolina, north Georgia, uh, northeast Alabama, uh, southeast Tennessee. Lamar has probably walked uh, more of the Cherokee trails than the Cherokee have. I think he, he spent a lot of time out there. Lamar, let's talk a little bit because these trails went places. I mean, they, they weren't just uh, trails. And, and let's talk a little bit about the towns that were around uh, in in 1700s, uh, the Cherokee and and sort of are any of them still around? And what's happened to them? And what happened to them in 1700s? You don't mean I mean are they still the site still there? Or are they, are well, they still I know inhabited? the sites are still there, but they, and there are some that are still inhabited. Correct. About the only place that's uh, inhabited today is around Robbinsville, Robbinsville. and uh, yeah. Cherokee Koala Boundary, and then they have a few tracts of land outside that but for the most part if you went back to say 1700 uh, contact I guess with Cherokees began just 20 years before that with the with the uh, white people or as I call them in all the records you know it's the white people yep and the Indians and uh, there were about 60 Cherokee towns and villages and that seemed to kind of hold true for the next hundred years about 60 50 to 60 Cherokee towns and villages some of them moved around a little bit and, but everything focuses on Charlestown, South Carolina. That was the big uh, seaport. That's where the trade began. The trade is what really uh, brought the Cherokees in contact with the, with the Europeans, and especially the British. 1710, some uh, Cherokees went down to Charlestown. They said, we want to open some trading centers up, you know, get traders up into our area up here because we want to get began a trade. And uh, the Board of Trade with the British came up with some places and regulations and rules how to govern trade with the Cherokees. And it was almost 300 miles, depending on where you went, Cherokee Nation, about 300 miles from Charlestown. And so, but this trail was opened up and it became known as the Charlestown Trading Path. And that was like the, the big primary uh, trunk trail that came into Cherokee country, although it forked when you got up into the, on up. So as you got up into the upper upstate South Carolina, around the Kiwi River, you had your lower Cherokee towns. And they were the towns that suffered the most because when war broke out between the the British and the Cherokees, that was the first towns they were going to hit. And plus they were in the flatland, or in flatlands where the mountain Cherokees were very remote. And the first maps that you see, these old maps, they show the Blue Ridge and it says impassable mountains. And so the mountains served as a barrier, a protective ring of big mountains that that uh, protected the Cherokee heartland. When you got up in the, in the, across into Georgia, you got a few Cherokee towns there. 
at Clayton, Georgia, was called the Dividings. Yes. That was the Dividings. And the Charlestown Trading Path went on across to the Hiawassee River if you went on west. But, but one fork turned north and crossed the Blue Ridge at one of the most famous gaps, Raven Gap. And that was an easy place for an army to get over as well as traders to get to the Cherokee towns. Now, Clayton, Georgia was called Sikoa Old Town. When you got through Raymond Gap, there was a, they went through what was called the Grassy Plains. And that's one thing that really uh, fascinates me is the, how the landscape is described by these early travelers that followed these Cherokee trails town to town. Bartram, in 1775, came up the Charlestown Trading Path and uh, visited Cowie Town. And uh, recently, I read uh, Francis Harper's book on Bartram's travels, and some of these books place Bartram as a, at this Morton Falls or something in North Georgia, and they, they claim that was Bartram's Falling Creek. By, by, taking, by having mapped mile by mile from the British journals of 1761, 1760, and other um, Journals, including Benjamin Hawkins, I'd already mapped out Bartram's route because he followed this trading route through South Carolina. And when I actually tra- traced out where he went and how long it took him to get there and what he saw, I found out, hey, he didn't, he didn't go to Morton Falls over near Clayton. He went up the corridor of Highway 28 towards Highlands, North Carolina, and Overflow Creek is the fall, falling creek that he visited. Yes, I'm positive yeah. of that. So... But anyway, if you cross over Raven Gap, you're in the headwaters of the Little Tennessee River, and it flows due north, which is very unusual for a river to do, is to flow north. And you would um, come to the Grassy Plains, and there would be Estato Old Town, and there's still a mound there. That's close to Dillard, Dillard Georgia. Then there would be Kiwochi Town, which was on Mulberry, modern Mulberry Creek, and the trail followed both sides of the Little Tennessee River, crisscrossing it sometimes, and um, past the town of Tassenti, Alweda, uh, came to a Choi town just uh, south of uh, Franklin, mm-hmm. and it was a mother town. And then in Franklin, North Carolina, where the Nikwasi Mounds located, was Nikwasi town, of course, and several towns up Cartouche Creek there. But, I mean, I could, this is over 60 towns scattered all over, so I'm in the middle towns now. Uh, so you go down to Cowie and all the way down to the Tuckasegee River. Then you get over towards Cherokee, they call those the out towns. And the reason this came about was because the British trade system set up, grouped the towns, the lower towns, the middle towns, the out towns, the valley towns over on Valley River, uh, Murphy to Andrews, and the overhill towns, which is over, on the, over the Tennessee line. So that's where they grouped them. How large? How many people would live in these? How large were these towns in their in their heyday, Lamar? Uh, if you read the journals, when the war broke out with the Cherokees, uh, some of the Diarist, I guess you'd call them, or whatever. They wrote day by day every town they entered and burned, and they were, the bigger towns were 100 to 120 or 30 houses, and then the smaller towns or villages were anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 houses. But you know, there's a lot of them that were 100 and over 100, so that might be. And they always wrote down how many gunmen were there. Yeah, and so you could figure five times that, four or five times that, to get a population estimate. And there were 60. In, the, in 1776, when the, the South Carolina Army and the North Carolina Armies came over the mountains to attack the Cherokees because they sided with the British, having a, fought the British in 1761, the Cherokees said, hey, we better stick with the British. Besides, they said no Americans are going to be able to get over the Appalachian Divide. Uh, they promised us that. So the, uh, 1776 comes the North Carolina Army and the South Carolina Army, 
and they burn in fall in the fall when no more food could be produced 52 Cherokee towns and villages 52 and and ran the Cherokees of course back into the mountains and there's no telling how many of them starved because this was I mean this was brutal absolutely brutal so, but anyway that's how the towns are kind of laid out if you want to check this out I've got a website called Cherokee Journey connected with Wild South get online you can I've got maps on there that show a lot of this so that would explain a lot of what we're talking about he does, and, and I, I strongly recommend any of my listeners that want to learn more about this, go to that and, and look at those maps, because Lamar has done some amazing work, uh, not only in identifying uh, the towns and the trails, but, but mapping them uh, and, and making them uh, available uh, for, um, for, you to, for you to look at and research. We're coming, uh, coming up to the end of, our, uh, of this segment, and we'll be... Uh, Taking a little break here shortly, and tomorrow when we come back. I know there's some work being done uh, with the uh, with the Tribal Historical uh, uh, Preservation Office on on some of the river trails too, and I want to talk a little bit about that and and traveling through time and and uh, maybe even some of the uh, the uh, tourist uh, ideas that the uh, Eastern Band is working on uh, using the trails. You're listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and we shall return shortly. Leslie pointed, so this is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and we are uh, having a great discussion with Lamar Marshall today about uh, his work on on mapping the uh, many of the historical trails of the eastern band of the Cherokee. And and uh, Lamar, during the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, uh, tourism and and some work that you're uh, you're doing uh, with the uh, land trust over in Tennessee and some of, some of the things they're doing. You want to talk to us a little about that? Well, I guess the coming thing, you know, is cultural tourism. We've got green tourism and um, ecological tourism, and now we've got cultural tourism. But people are very interested in, in the past. They're very interested they in history. They love it. And, and so one of the, uh, the ideas is that it could even be like a driving tour. You're driving in your car down Highway 28 towards Cherokee, and your, your iPhone comes on, and the app starts. It says, if you'll look to your left, you're passing Cowie Mound. This was the trading center of the Cherokees. They had a council house on the mound. 1761, the British Army took, used that as a hospital. And just uh, as you go town to town, point to point, well, people are, get this uh, oral history rather than a dry brochure or, you know, so yeah. the new thing. But, yes, that is, that is very big. Is the, uh, can, can people walk uh, the trails, for instance, in the Kuala Boundary? If, if, if somebody is, is going on vacation there and they know where a trail is, are they allowed just to go out there and walk the trails? Uh, I don't believe that, that, that you could just go out there and take off on tribal. Right, Not on the boundary. On the tribal boundary land, no. Outside of that, the National Park, which joins the boundary, there's a premier Cherokee trail that uh, that I walked on board of, and that will be a, a trail that went from Cherokee, which was Nunyanyi, and uh, early on was called the Potato Place. Correct. But there was a trail that went over the Smoky Mountains, pr- uh, followed primarily the corridor of U.S. 440, 441. 
Well, the Cherokee Indian Trail went up the mountain and stood across the Newfound Gap. It crossed the Indian Gap. Yes, I know that trail. And, okay, if you're going to the Clemens Dome, there's a parking place there. You can you can start walking a trail right there north, and it's called the uh, the Road Fork. I believe is the name of it, of the Pigeon River. And the the old trail is still there. The Forest Service, I mean the the National Park Service, has taken very good care of it. And you, it's three miles. You're walking downhill, and you'll come out at the parking lot of the Chimney Tops. So that's the one segment of a Cherokee Trail that's very easy to walk. A lot of the trails are, are back in the mountains are very rough. A lot of them have been overgrown with rhododendron, and they're just uh, you just can't hardly get through them anymore. Yeah. But there are certain uh, ones that that can be uh, followed, and I'm actually writing an article. For a local magazine, and I'm going to detail about six or eight of those trails uh, so that you can access and and walk. Yeah, the the and where again? I guess the the best way to to find out information uh, not only about the history of the of the trails that people can go visit uh, is, is again to go to the the Wild South Weld website. That's correct. You get all kind of information on there, the cultural as well as the. The uh, conservation, natural history, and all the things that's going on around the, the mountains up here. We've got doing pretty good work here in North Carolina as well as Alabama and other states. Uh, i tell you one of the things that always interested me, too, was can, kind of reconstructing these geographical landscapes, historical landscapes, was finding Cherokee place names. Many yeah. of them have been recorded and remembered. A lot more of them are still, still in records that we're pulling out. The West Fork of the Chattooga River, I found an early 1820 survey that called it the Gwinnicoloki. And mm. I record these names, take them back to the speakers at the at, at Cherokee, and they'll tell me what it means if they can understand. As Tom Belt, the speaker, said, one day said, they wrote down what they thought. The white man wrote down what he thought that the Cherokee said. And sometimes they don't resemble it very much. But one uh, road that showed up on the 1761 British maps was the, the Yana Canara, C-A-N-A-R-A road, and I for years looked at this thing. It left uh, around Macon County, around the airport area there. It was called a Jory Town or Yori Town. Bartram went there. And it went over the Nantahala Mountains to the Valley River, Andrews. And so we studied this, and I got Tom Belt, and I said, what does this mean? And he, we looked at it, and he said, number one, the, our dialect up here does not have a, an R in it. So when you see an R, that's a lower Cherokee dialect. So you take that R and make it an L. And what he sees there is Yona Gonali. Yona Gonali, and it means where the bear lives. And hmm. so the Nantahala Mountains, of course, were the habitat of black bear. That was their, you know, one of their foods that they depended on. A deer, turkey, and bear was the staples of the Cherokee diet. And so that's very interesting to be able to recover the Cherokee place names and to create a map that shows nothing but Cherokee names on the, the rivers, the mountains, the trails, the towns. So are, are this is this part of the layering map stuff that we were talking about early on um, uh, in the show, uh, Marshall, where, where we're actually including, uh, you know, the historic towns, the camps, the villages, the farmstead, the trails, and all of that? Is, is that part of what, what this would uh, become? That's right. This layers. I've got probably 100 layers on my Google Earth mapping. And um, one of the, uh, of the layers that the Cherokees are very interested in is their genealogy. Yes. In 1835, where were the families living that became the families that didn't go west? They stayed. They fought. They stayed. They went to, ended up over at uh, Kuala Boundary, Kuala Town, they called it in the early days. Uh, what is the, what's that ethnogenesis? And so we have been able to take n records from the National Archives and go back and 
and locate where their farms were in 1835 eight, during that time period and then um, put it on a map, put the name on there, and then take it, say, a map to the Cherokee Fair. We did that a couple of years ago. Showed about 10 or 12 of the families, their family roots. That's, you know, that's amazing stuff. And I know that's something that the, the, the Cherokee are, are very interested in and, and wanting to, um, you know, for their own use, but also wanting to uh, uh, promote. Uh, as we near the end here, I did, wanna, I did want you to just mention something that, uh, with, with the River Trail um, and some of the work that's uh, being done uh, on that uh, uh, with, with Wild South and the... And the uh, uh, preservation, uh, tribal historical preservation. Could you talk about the the river trail a little bit? Well, the river trail was uh, actually, th- this uh, segment that you're looking at was built before I began working on Cherokee Trails Project. What my work did was confirm that, yes, this was built right on top of, and part of it is the original trail that was there for a thousand years. Yeah. We expanded our work and and identified some uh, corridors up the Raven Fork uh, of the kind of lefty around Koala and identified some places where they can expand this river trail because there are a lot of people that live there close in town, they don't feel comfortable getting way out in the mountains or maybe you know, they've got a, a handicap, they want to be able right. to go someplace close. They want to t- get off at lunch and be able to get to the river and maybe run or walk up and down this river trail. They're very heavily used, and, and, and they're, it's like something coming back to and then there are some historical trails that we identified that cross over Rattlesnake Mountain and over the Big Witch Gap and over to Bunches Creek and Black Camp Gap around the... And these are all in Koala? Yeah, all in yeah. and around Koala. So we've developed a map showing in as much as we could find the Cherokee trails that we can, trails that we can document. So they got new trails and old trails. And that's an ongoing project now that uh, that you're working on with the Eastern Band? Yeah, they're, they're at a point now where they're trying to decide whether they're going to build another segment of trail or, or, you know, they're going through a process. So I'm not part of that process except to be as a consultant. This, is, uh, this has been amazing uh, uh, stuff that we've talked about today uh, uh, with Lamar and, and – uh, Lamar, I know um, as, as we're kind of winding down here a little bit, uh, uh, talk just a little bit about Wild South and, and who Wild South is and, and what they're doing. Well, as I, I founded a group in Alabama in 1991, and it was a specific to a national forest called the Bankhead National Forest. We were the Bankhead Monitor then. Then we ex- grew to, the, to Wild Alabama and began covering conservation issues across the state. We called ourselves a nonprofit environmental educational corporate, I mean a nonprofit. And uh, as the years went on, I became in contact with groups in North Carolina. One was uh, the Southern Appalachian Biodiversity Project, SABP, which is kind of a, it didn't have a, a ring that rung well with people like in Alabama. So we merged our groups in 2003 and decided that Wild South was a better name than the Southern Appalachian, I mean the I can't even say it anymore. <laughs> you forgot it. SABP. <laughs> and, uh, but we had people up here that were doing incredible work to protect the mountains, watching the forest, making sure the Forest Service did the right thing. And now we've got, I don't know how many people we've got on, on staff. Lamar, now. we're going we're gonna to have to have you back. We're running out of time. And I really appreciate uh, the work you've done and, and what you're doing. And I recommend people go to the Wild South website. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and until next time, I will see you in the wild. Hey!